This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Overcoming physical tragedy is no small task, and it's important to hear stories of those that live everyday life well and beautifully with a handicap. Today we have Hayden Perkins' story. Hayden lives here in Oxford with his wife, Jessica, his three college-age sons, and four-year-old daughter. Here's Hayden. I'm a pediatric dentist, so I went to a couple of extra years, two extra years of training after dental school, and um, then I went through the whole board certification and stuff like that, so I'm board certified. I grew up in little small town, little small farm town called Hollandale, Mississippi, over in the Delta. One of my earliest memories was my dad. There's an old cemetery on Lake Washington outside of Glen Allen where we, I pretty much grew up out there. My, my grandparents owned a lot of farmland around there, and so we were on Lake Washington. My, my dad's aunts both lived on Lake Washington. His mother died during childbirth and so his aunts basically raised him and so they lived out there and so he took care of them you know as he got older but when i was like maybe like 18 months old his father died and i remember i probably like two and a half or three but being at the cemetery and you know throwing a ball or something like that and and then him hugging me and crying and i that was probably like my, probably the earliest memory. My mom was kind of the disciplinarian. She was very, very tough. We didn't have like big family discussions and things like that, but we were close enough to where, you know, if we were having a problem, you know, we could, my parents were just working and busy and, but certainly later in life, you know, after I got hurt and things like that, that definitely, me open up to them a lot more, you know, about things. I was um, I was 15 years old. It was uh, November 9th, 1991. And I'm just sitting in the living room or something, and my best friend, Jessica Sullivan, she had this little mutt dog named Rascal, and it didn't have any hair. I mean, it was just it. I mean, it probably should have been put down years before. <laughs> all this happened, but her dad was a farmer and he found it running around the farm one day and brought it home. One problem it has, it had seizures all the time. And so she called me crying, freaking out. Rascal's having a seizure. Can you take me to, to the vet? I'm like, yeah, I'll come get you. So she didn't have her license yet. So I went and got her and dropped her off. We went to the vet and then her boyfriend, his name was... Uh, Duke McCory dropped her off at her boyfriend's house. I headed home and I stopped in Wayside, got some gas and some chips or something. And that's, I think that's what I remember. I, di- I didn't put my seatbelt back on. And w- I was driving a, a Mitsubishi Montero. It was kind of a newer vehicle, kind of the new thing Mitsubishi was putting out. It was an SUV, but they were real tall and boxy. It was a kind of an overcast, real windy. I got about four or five miles down the road and I think I I reached down to 
change the radio station or something, and a big gust of wind hit me and blew me off the road. And when I tried to come back on, I that the there was a big lip when I tried to come back on, and it, they think the like the front tire blew out or it just caught, and so I just turned sideways and and just started flipping, and I went out the windshield, bounced down the road a couple hundred yards and ended up in a ditch. There was a vehicle coming towards me that stopped and then I mean, just by some miracle, there was a sheriff about two miles behind me and he started out as an EMT. And so when they found me, I was in a ditch I was completely, my body was completely contorted and twisted. So, and I wasn't breathing because of my diaphragm, I mean, you can't breathe like that. And he knew to, he told the other guy to grab my legs and he grabbed my shoulders and they just, you know, they just wrenched me back. And as soon as they did, I, they said, you know, I started breathing. And I kind of came to and, and I was kind of in and out, you know, laying there. But I did, I did remember sitting up you know, and then realizing, you know, and trying to just get up and realizing, you know, I couldn't move my legs. And so I just laid back down. They ended up taking me to, to the hospital in Greenville and then transporting me to Jackson. You know, you go through a denial stage for a while and, the, you know, the doctors don't want to don't want to tell you, you know, it's it's 100%, it's permanent, it's, you know, you're never going to walk again, you know, so they always try to give you some good things. Well, we think it's just, your spinal cord's just bruised, you know, it's not severed, and there are people that get hurt, and six months after, and a year after, you know, they start getting, you know, movement and feeling back and stuff, but, so there was always that, that hope pray like please let me start feeling let me start walking you know it was a couple of probably a couple of years before I gave up on that it was tough in a sense that you know you're you're 15 I think I was more embarrassed about being in a wheelchair I mean I remember my parents taking me back to school you know about my first day going back to school it was just I mean, it was just tough and you can only imagine what that must be like. And we love telling these stories because you hear them right from the person themselves. And I know Hayden, he's my daughter's dentist, and he doesn't know it, but the guy is one of my heroes, the way he's lived his life. And when we come back, we'll continue with Hayden Perkins' story, a local story from our little patch of earth about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi. We continue with Hayden Perkins' story after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
Wade, we continue with our American stories, and we've been listening to Hayden Perkins' story. He's a pediatric dentist right here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. We left off with Hayden telling us about his car accident that had led him to his life without the use of his legs. We return to Hayden. You know, you're 15 and you're dating girls, and that part was kind of hard in the beginning, I guess. Now, you know, I, my support base was awesome. My friends were awesome. The school, everybody. I mean, you know, my friends never, you know, skipped a beat. They didn't allow me to not be involved and, you know, not do things. I mean, they'd just grab me and pick me up and throw me in the boat, you know, if we're going hunting. And, you know, that was a big help because it was just, you know, that first year or two, probably my freshman, sophomore year, where, I mean, you know, I just had a tough time. But something, I guess, just kind of clicked. And I basically was like, you know what, you can sit around feeling sorry for yourself and wishing, you know, what have been, you know, what could have been and whatever. Or you can move on and make the best of it. I kind of did, and I never looked back, really. Um, a lot of people can't get over it, can't get past, things like that. And I was just able to. And I have people ask me all the time, you know, I guess hint around about, well, if you could change things, what would it be? And honestly, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and change it. It just, I think it kind of makes me, made me who I am. It's who I am. I'm, you know, Hayden Perkins. I'm the guy in the wheelchair. I mean, it just, I, I just, and I don't, I can't tell you the last time I thought about it. I mean, it's just the part of me. You know, I might, if I'm rolling around, I get, you know, my front wheel gets stuck on a rug or something, and I, you know, I kind of fall forward or something, you know, I might cuss and throw the rug around. But I don't, I don't think, you know, God, if it wasn't for the stupid wheelchair, if I wasn't in this wheelchair, I mean, that never comes into play. It's just a part of me. I don't see, it's like when I, when I see, Somebody else in a wheelchair, I think that person's in a wheelchair. But I don't, it, I, ne- I never see or I never, never see myself in a wheelchair. I don't, I don't, it's hard to, kind of hard to explain. You know, like going back to, you know, if I could go back and change things, I wouldn't. I mean, I think it was part of what was supposed to happen. You know, I was, I didn't make good, didn't really care about my grades. And, you know, I was, you know, kind of the athlete and, Got most handsome and, you know, had the pretty girlfriend. And I don't think I was headed to a path to where I would be right now if it would not happen. I'm 100% convinced. On it. I don't know where I'd be, but I'm, I know that for sure. And it made me, I think the whole injury and all of it helped to make me, I guess, maybe a fighter. I don't give up on things. I don't take no for If I get my head around something now, you know, I'm pretty darn determined. When I was in, started college, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and you know, I don't even remember who said it. it was like, well, you know, computer science and all that stuff was just kind of getting revved up, and you could, you know, make a lot of money, you know, and, you know, you, you, you can sit there, you, you can sit at a desk, you work on computers, it's perfect, and they make a lot of money. I was like, okay. So I started out in computer science, and I took my first calculus class and computer programming class, and it's like, yeah, no. And then I had a, 
I was home for something and I had a dental appointment with my dentist in Greenville. You know, we got to talking. I we I don't think we talked about me being a dentist, but that was when I decided, you know, this was, this was right up my alley. I'm, I like hanging around people and taking care of people, and dentists pretty much sit down all day long. So I'm, I'm going to do that. And so I started, you know, I changed my major, and, you know, I had to really work hard, really had to study hard, you know, and I had people, well, you know, my parents even. Well, I mean, you know, you need to have a backup plan. You know, what if you don't get in? And I, the, there was no backup plan. Uh, that's what I was going to do, and I was I was, was going to get in. It was summer break, so I was home for the summer. My friend, Jessica Sullivan, she, you know, always had a bunch of girls. One of them was Jessica, Jessica Wood at the time. Anyway, and we had nobody had ever met her before. And I remember she coming out, and she had this little green dress on, and everybody was, and of course, you know, we're guys, we're all in the car, you know. Golly, who's that? I don't know. I guess we kind of hit it off that night, and we ended up starting dating almost immediately after that. You know, I knew there were probably a, a lot of people in college that me being in a wheelchair kind of would have been, a, you know, a problem, would have been a an issue, you know, for dating or marrying or... I don't think she ever saw it either. She'd never allow me to use it, you know, as an excuse or... I don't ever remember it even coming up and talking about it. So we got married in May of 1995. 1995. So I was a... I was a junior. She was a senior, so I was studying ecology one night because right, I had changed my major to biology and pre-med and so we were studying and she calls me and says you know I, I think I might be pregnant and I was like what and I was like I just remember being like okay I'm not irritated not irritated that she was she was saying that she was pregnant but I was like She's not pregnant, and I'm irritated. I got to stop studying. I got to go to Walmart and get a pregnancy test and go over to her house. So, went in Walmart, you know, and I'm, you know, of course, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like on that aisle looking in this thing. So, I get a pregnancy test, and and I go over, and I'm, I'd gotten out of my wheelchair. I'm sitting on my couch. She, you know, goes to the bathroom, comes back, and when she hands it to me, and it has a plus on it. And I remember us, it was the weirdest, just a a spontaneous response. We both just started dying out laughing. We just laughed hysterically. And then then it kind of hit us. All right, what are we going to do? You know, there were a lot of stages in my life that got me kind of to where I am. And that was kind of, that was probably the, the next big one that really lit a fire under me and catapulted me, you know, to do even, study even harder and do even better because it was, it was kind of real then. And it, you know, we say it all the time when we talk about it, I mean, it, it matured us probably. We grew up real, real fast. I think they were just kind of wake-up calls, being in a wheelchair or when I got hurt. And then, of course, you know, you know, getting told that you're about to have a newborn baby and you're not, 
not married and you're, you know, you're in college and it kind of changes things. You know, I think, I would think back on it now and, and I'm just like, I don't know how the hell we did it, but we did. I think when you're younger like that, you just, it's just different. Like if I had to go back and do it all now at my age, I just, I couldn't do it. But you're just kind of in survival mode, trying to get to the, trying to get to that next step. You know, when I got in dental school, I mean, she got pregnant again. Spring of my freshman year of dental school, we had twins. You know, a lot of people would say, you know, God, how in the heck did you do dental school? And, you know, you had a two-year-old and twin newborns, and we just did it. It was life. We were just, you know, working every day. Jessica was working, and I was basically had a full-time job with dental school, and, you know, you just made time for your family when you could, and... And looking back on it, it was fine. It was not that, it didn't, I guess it didn't seem that bad. And my goodness, what storytelling and what a voice. He talked about the fact that he could sit around feeling sorry for himself, wishing what might have been, or you can get on with things. At the age of 15, after probably a year of, you know, just possibly and legitimately worrying or wondering or wandering. He said, I just got on with things. And honestly, he said, I wouldn't go back and change it. It's who I am. I'm the guy in the wheelchair. By the way, up until then, he said he didn't care about his grades. He didn't care about a lot, hanging out, playing some sports, and it it changed who he was. He learned he was a fighter. And then, of course, he meets the love of his life, gets pregnant before he's married. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that happens, folks. And then what do you do about it? Well, folks, some people have the kid. And they have the kid young, and it's a good thing. As he said, it lit a fire under me. When we come back, we continue the story of Hayden Perkins, a real-life hero story. And they're all over this great country, stories like this, folks. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Hayden Perkins' story, here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories in our final segment of Hayden Perkins' story. He's a pediatric dentist that at the age of 15 was in a horrible accident that paralyzed him from the waist down. He married his wife Jessica in college and worked hard to become a pediatric dentist despite all the odds against him. Back to Hayden. You can't be a victim. You know, that we see that a lot these days and you know there's always an excuse that I can't do something or because of this or you know whether it's you know an injury or something that's gender based or race based or you know anything like that you know it's just you can do anything you put your mind to you want to I've raised I've raised the boys that way push them push them push them 
I don't try to be, but I think I'm probably a pretty good example of you can do whatever you want to do. Um, you know, I had people tell me getting into dental school. I mean, I, I was at the time I, you know, I didn't know there was. I know there was some concern with the admissions board about me being able to. There were some questions in interviews, you know, not real direct, but I could kind of see, you know, what they were about. All right, well, how's this gonna, how's this gonna work? I mean, how, he can't use his feet. I mean, how's he gonna do the wrist at, you know, the, the little pedal that controls everything? And that's something that I didn't, I never, I mean, I knew that was how it worked, but I, I didn't think about it. I didn't care. We'll figure it out. You know, how's he going to keep his hands clean? And, you know, just things like that. But I, you know, it's not something I ever really thought about or used, you know, as a, a roadblock. I just never even, it's just one of those things you, you know, I'm, I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. And I'll figure, we'll figure out how to make it work. You know, sometimes I'll go in the rooms and, you know, they'll be surprised. And sometimes they'll even say something. I remember several times, you know, going, like today I was in the operating room and I'll go, I'll go into the room to talk to the parents, you know, before we, we go back. And a lot of times the grandmom will be there. Well, the grandmama wasn't at the initial appointment. You know, I'll go busting up in there and, you know, and it's, Susie, and, you know, I'm talking to little Susie, you ready to get your teeth clean and brush and going through all the stuff. And I can see the grandmama just kind of almost a little confused. They're just surprised, you know, and they'll even, I've had even some of them ask, you know, I'll get to talking and, you know, she'll, you know, she'll say, this is your dentist. The older people, I mean, they'll just ask you. I mean, they're, they're not embarrassed to, you know, ask a question and, um, you know, they're just a little surprised that you know and a lot of them think that it was that I was hurt after I went to dental school it's a lot more shocking or surprising to them when you know I tell them you know I know I was hurt when I was 15 and you know and you still went to dental school and like, yeah I think that's a weird or strange observation that or reaction that people have that you know if you're disabled or there's just certain things you can't do or it's expected that, you know, you're not going to achieve real big things or, you know, after I was hurt, you know, obviously I I was depressed about, you know, a lot of things, but depressed that I couldn't do a lot of things that I used to love doing and, you know, football and, you know, different sports and golf and I still miss golf. You know, I, I get sad when we're down at the beach and, you know, the boys are you know, they love playing golf. There are things like that that I do, you know, when I say I don't ever think about it or I don't, there are things like that that I do. I don't know if they make me sad, but, well, maybe I do. Maybe I get sad that, you know, I wish I could do that with them. Now, you know, and Hayden's four, we're down at the beach, you know, I wish I could walk down the beach with her, with with the waves splashing and collect seashells. That's a specific thought I guess I've had is going to the beach and, and not being able to play with her or go out into the water and hold her up and, you know, like all the other dads are doing. And anything that I can't do 
if I run into it, you know, I might get a little bad or I think about it. You know, because I say, you know, you know, if I'm a, if I put my mind to it, you can you can do anything. Well, there are limitations on that. Okay, I can't I can't get up and and run out into the water and and hold my little girl up on the beach. There are things like that that I might get a little emotional about or kind of sad about, but there are things that I do miss or the mit or maybe I miss out on that I wish I could do, but I don't lose sleep over it. Kind of think about it and. But then I, I just move on. I do something different. Life is short. And I, I've gone through periods of my life after I got hurt where, you know, I was down about things. Um, not Maybe not my wheelchair, but you only got so much time here. And you got you to gotta play with the hand you've been dealt. You just got to pick yourself up and go. And that's what I've tried to do. And when I, I get I get down or, you know, worried about something or stressed about something, you know, I just try to remember, you know, how blessed I feel like I am to be where I am. Catch myself a lot of times saying, Hayden, really? I mean, you're really you're worried about that? Look at how successful you've been. Look at how much, you know, God has blessed you and, and you're worried about not having enough or wanting to do more or do this, you know, so you just gotta just gotta live life. That's all I can say. Lately, in the last couple of months, I've had like this anxiety stuff, you know, and I, I've about did I do enough, have I done this right, or golly, I should have done this in the past and why did I sell this? And I guess I'm middle aged. I worry about am I gonna be able to keep going? Statistically, paraplegics, quadriplegic, have a shorter lifespan. Not significantly, but it's, you looked at statistics, you know, you just don't live as long. And the main reason for that is, you know, you just, you have something going on and you don't know. A melanoma or something on your hip or, you know, or some kind of bladder cancer, something that you would, you know, you would have some pain or something from and you would, you know, you would go to your doctor about, I worry about that, you know, especially now I've got a little four-year-old and I still want to be around. For the most part, they're, they're irrational thoughts. It's things that you can't control. You know, it's things in the past that you, you did or you didn't do, things in the future that you cannot control. I mean, I can't control if I you know, if I I leave here and I get on the highway and I get hit by a Mack truck, you know, there's you can't control that kind of stuff. So I think about that, like, why am I sitting here thinking about if I'm going to die at 62? I can do everything I can. I can go to the doctor every year or every six months and get a physical and do things earlier than most people say you should. So, you know, it's like a roller coaster for me. You know, I, I'm good. Like right now I'm talking about it and I'm good. And then I'll wake up and at 2 a.m. I'm in a panic attack. I'm working through it. I'm better. I'm good now. So it's just one of those, just another another thing in life that's happening, I guess. Do it as much as you can, and then you just got to give it to God and let it go. And then live. Life is too short. And my goodness, Hayden has taught a lot of us how to live here in our little town. He puts an annual fireworks presentation together 
And it is not a little fireworks presentation. Thousands of people come, food trucks come, and Hayden and his pals, they just take care of things and just bring the whole community together. Again, my little girl uh, has been getting her teeth worked on by Hayden, and Hayden, I'm lucky to consider him a guy I know and a guy I got to spend more time with. The story of Hayden Perkins, his wife Jessica, his beautiful kids, a life well-lived in a beautiful small town that we broadcast from, Oxford, Mississippi. That family story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. History, the arts, sports, and of course, your stories as well, stories about love and loss, the stories of hardworking Americans across this country in their voices. And of course, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll edit them down, and we'll play them. We love to hear from you, and we love to hear about you and your lives One of our favorite subjects is leadership, and we talk about it a lot, at least once a week. And some of our favorites, well, Pete Pace's remarkable story, graduates from Annapolis, finds himself in a place called Vietnam. And the question is, how do you lead men who are older than you and have been in the field of combat? And Pete Pace walks some students through that conundrum. Bear Bryant and John Wooden, we did hours on those great leaders in the sports field and many more. And two of our favorites also, Ed Renzi's story. He's the CEO of McDonald's, and he started at the minimum wage there. And Faye Vincent's life and his leadership lessons. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball and also the president of Columbia Pictures. Two very different worlds. At the top of his game, at the top of his field, in both sports and the arts. And this next segment is on Mike Levin, a friend, a business leader, And just a really, really good guy. And it's hard for many men to say that about other men. Because so many guys, well, we're a mixed bag. But Mike, a mensch, uh, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And my goodness, a lifetime of leadership in the hotel business. From growing and expanding the Holiday Inn Express brand. To, in the last episode of his career, growing and expanding the remarkable Las Vegas Sands brand. And that was in the years somewhere around the mid-2000s. Mike now is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Georgia Aquarium. And my goodness, if you haven't been, it's one of the greatest aquariums in the world, maybe the greatest aquarium in the world, and built in large measure by the generosity of Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And we talked to Mike uh, on and off about him performing a talk he's given now and then to young people and to old people, and in between, about life leadership lessons he learned. And here's Mike performing 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. As I reach this much maligned place in the world called retirement, it's not only with satisfaction and awe, but with trepidation. Even today, I wondered for these past months what I might say in these few minutes allotted to summarize a body of work which in fact represented the great majority of my life. 
Unable to summarize quickly, I thought I would simply speak in short sentences what I've learned since the first day on February 1, 1961. When I took a decamp bus from North Arlington, New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan, to the shuttle to Grand Central Station, and walked through a long tunnel to my seat in the sales department of the Hotel Roosevelt. So here are 54 things I learned, one for every year, not in chronological order. I learned that brains are no substitute for hard work, that every single employee is a human being that deserves dignity and care, that the customer has a voice and should be listened to, that the customer is not always right, but is always the customer, that the boss is not always right, but is always the boss, that to ask why rather than to accept an order is okay, that you make mistakes and that is the best way to learn, that to listen is better than talking, that people don't always do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that honesty and truth sometimes get you into trouble, but it's okay because in the end you will win. To tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. That every person, no matter their color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion, has equal opportunity and should be provided that, but should work to maintain those rights. That people everywhere care about their family their loved ones, and their country. That international business is not a mystery. That the more diverse you make yourself, the easier it is to understand others. That tolerance and patience gains respect from others and self-respect as well. That people need explanations of why they should do things you want them to do. That participation in industry activities is not only a giving experience to others, but is a learning experience for yourself. That this is a human industry where you can touch thousands and build friendships. That competitors are not enemies. That the balance sheet of life is more important than the balance sheet of the business. That Wall Street is just a street, not a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That as a young person, you learn a lot, but even as an old person, you still much learn. That when you have to fire someone, never take their dignity away. That if you have a family, don't miss your kids' events, they grow up too fast. That you can balance your life and be successful. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes more that no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. That charity and giving are more rewarding than making and taking. That professionalism means not perfection, but the skill to be successful. That real peace for you financially comes when you have no debts. That the debts you have should be to people or institutions that provided your values. That corporations are not an end in themselves, they are a means to an end. That when you are mistreated, never lower your standards to behave like the one who did it.
that politics exists everywhere, not only in government, that being political is a strategy that works sometimes, but not always, that doing a favor for someone else is better than getting one from someone else, that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance, that democracy is a tough strategy and a difficult system, but seeing many others is still the best system invented, that capitalism provides the best opportunities, but it is not perfect and not always fair, that reading biographies teaches you lessons you cannot learn by yourself, that returning a phone call to someone you haven't heard from in years should be a joy not a burden, that early to bed and early to rise helps to get the job done, that exercise, eating right and dressing properly are strategies for good health and a good life, that bad things happen to good people, but that good people handle them much better, that passion for a sports team is a good relief from the normal tensions of life, but remember, it's only a game that you should enjoy every obligation because with obligations done, responsibility is earned and success follows. That don't sweat the small stuff is a bad strategy. That your life is made up of small stuff, so live with it. That winning isn't everything, it's how you play the game that counts. That the apple of temptation is always there and you will be tested often. Be yourself, and to thine own self be true, should be written on every desk. That you should be proud to be an American. And lastly, number 54, that the best word in the English language is love. Now it's two years since I've done this speech, and I've learned number 55. Number 55 is no matter what you have done well in your life, oftentimes you will not get credit for it. And thanks so much for that, Mike. And my goodness, my favorites to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. Brains are no substitute for hard work. My goodness, I've seen that play out in my life and friends' lives over and over again. That no matter how much you make, that is money, someone always makes more. And then no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. And that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. So glad to hear that from somebody who's plied the trades in business his whole life. And lastly, the best word in the English language is love. And to hear that from a, a businessman and a friend, well, that's why he is a friend. And that's Mike Levin, who spent his life leading in the hotel business right up to one of the biggest and most well-known brands in the country, the Las Vegas Sands. And now, in retirement, still running things, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Georgia Aquarium. Take your family, take friends to this remarkable place. You'll just smile for a day. This is Lee Habib, Mike Levin's 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. In the end, his story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from coaches, leaders in the military, leaders in business, and leaders in communities across this great country. And this edition is with Bill Koch, whose company Oxbow Carbon has over 1,200 employees and $4 billion in annual revenue. Bill has also led America to a victory in the world's premier sailing competition, the America's Cup, and did it on his first try. But today he brings us some formational leadership stories from his younger days starting at his high school, Culver Academy. At Culver, you know, my first year, I, you know, I got beat up a lot and rassed a lot. Uh, and when I was at Culver, some of the advisors told me that I couldn't get into MIT. <laughs> and then when I got into MIT, I said, well, you know, you're at the bottom of the class. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't think you'll make it. <laughs> and then I found out that if I wanted to do well, uh, mainly to impress my father, as well as mainly to develop my own skills and my own accomplishments. So I just would work very, very hard. Uh, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd take a book with me. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And then I graduated with top honors and then got my doctor's degree from it. And I've always been seemed to be told that I can't do something. <laughs> you know, being harassed and told I was dumb, an idiot, some other things. So that has become a big challenge for me. I mean, it, it can have two effects. Either you stay a nerd the rest of your life or an idiot the rest of your life, or you uh, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, I probably have a little OCD. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, well, that could either kill me or I could use it to an advantage. So I used it to work very hard. <laughs> and surprisingly, I got more honors than all my brothers put together. <laughs> we just made a couple of them pissed. But I um, wanted to play basketball. I thought the sport was terrific. But in our freshman year, the varsity only won one game. But we as freshmen couldn't play on the varsity in those days. Now they can, then you couldn't. And we were a bunch of nerds. And MIT went out and got this one coach from Methuen High School. It was a northern mill town that was dying in northern Massachusetts. And he had the longest winning record of any high school in the country. So MIT recruited him. And when we became sophomores and were playing on the varsity, we also won only one game. And the uh, coach, you know, took a while to learn out the MIT system, to huh, learn what nerds we are, <laughs> and what, uh, how clumsy and awkward we were. So I wanted to play more on the varsity, so I went up and went to a summer camp that he had so I could practice all summer. And also that avoided me going out and working on the ranch. <laughs> and I could possibly chase girls, <laughs> even though it was in, in Methuen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he told me he had a, a new plan. 
and he came up with a new play. But he came up with only one play because he said we weren't smart enough to learn more than one. <laughs> These nerds from MIT. And he was also uh, afraid that if, if uh, we all had different plays, we'd get too confused. And then he just drilled us over and over and over in that same play so we could do it in our sleep. So it was, you know, habitual. Then he started giving us variations off the play, which was great. But the most powerful thing he did was that he put people in the right spots to minimize their weakness and maximize their strengths. And he defined jobs. You know, and he said, okay, your, your job is to bring up the ball and dribble it, and dribble it up and set up a play. And then your job is to get rebounds and block shots and put up pivots. And then he said to another guy, all right, your job is to go after the best shooter on the other side. <laughs> and rough him up a little bit. But he made it very succinct. Well, anyway, in our junior year, we won over half our games. Our senior year, we had the longest winning streak in the country and the least points scored against us. And, and so I looked at that and said, that's a, you know, and I sat on the damn bench, <laughs> but it was terrific. I've, I learned it because that was one of the best lessons I made, ever learned at MIT. How important teamwork is and focus and, well, the guy also told us, you guys are winners. You know, if you think you're going to lose, you will lose. You know, if you think you're going to win, at least you have a 50-50 chance of winning. And I said, that's terrific, you know, and he said, you work all work together. I mean, it's remarkable because not one of us could have even joined, got in any other college. In fact, we probably wouldn't even made intramural teams. <laughs> and, and relying upon your teammates, you know, and not be a star. I think uh, Ren Arbuck said, any of you guys on the pro team, you can, if you want to be a superstar, any one of you can score, score 30 points a night. But if you do, we're gonna lose. And instead, we gotta work as a team. And if we win, then we're all heroes. And that's so true, and Red Auerbach is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad was my coach. I was a point guard on an all-state team, and my goodness, learned a lot of these lessons from my coach and a coach named Bobby Knight, who I spent some time with in the most foundational parts of my life. And it was all about these lessons about knowing your job, being accountable to the job, too. If your job is to rebound and block out that guy, rebound and block out that guy. And your teammates are depending on you. And what lessons learned. And it's amazing, right? This, this industrialist, this businessman, he's talking about college and college sports. And this is why sports is so important for so many people. Because where else do we get these lessons taught? Bill Koch's story, his leadership story, and a coach's story and the impact that man had on those boys who turned into men, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories from every part of this great country. North, south, east, west, big cities, little towns, and everything in between. And today we bring you a story from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name for being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And if Midland is known for anything, it's for the tremendous oil and gas resources that power our nation. And one of the leading energy entrepreneurs there is a guy by the name of Tim Dunn, who's been married to his wife, Terry, for over 40 years. And today brings us a story from his book, Yellow Balloons. I'm in that phase of having grandkids. We have our number 18 on the way now. That came from six children who are now all married. And we had six kids in nine years. And Mary Catherine, our oldest daughter, her uh, husband, Tim, and she moved to town. So Mary Catherine and Tim moved in with us. And they had two daughters, Wheatley, who was four at the time, and Mariah, who was about one. So... They lived with us while they were looking for a house. Then they found a house, but it was a fixer-upper. So they were going through fixing it up. So they ended up living with us for nine months. And during that time, of course, we got to see Mariah and Wheatley every day. And Mariah went from being a rug rat to a curtain climber to a toddler. She was a real joy as a kid. When there was a party of some kind, she would lap surf. She would go from lap to lap based on whatever food was in front of her. <laughs> Whoever had the best goodies, that's whose lap she wanted to be in. Obviously, you're always attached to your grandkids, but this was more like our kid. Mariah had some fever-induced seizures, which means she'd get a low-grade fever and didn't have a seizure. So we got six kids, and five of them are in the oil business with us. But David was beat to his own drum. He's almost just like me, which means we butted heads all the way growing up. So um, I remember when he was a junior, he was like, you know, you're controlling me. You don't give me any freedom. And I said, here's what freedom is. You pay the rent. You pay the car payment. You pay your own insurance. And you will be free in 18 months. And I can't wait. And I saw his eyes get as big as saucers. We never had any more problems after that. <laughs> So David went and he got an engineering degree. And so his brother's really leaning on him to come back to us. We needed help really bad. But he decided he's going to be a musician. And he said, I just don't want to look back and wonder what I could have done. So he gave himself two years. And that was about 10 years ago now. One of his songs just won an award for a song of the year in Christian music called I Want to Go Back. When I was a kid, I was sure. I could run across the ocean Now I was gonna be an astronaut But it was you and it was me I had everything I needed Faith could even move a mountaintop And then I grew up And then I got older And my life got tough And we grew apart so David is in Nashville, and he's, he's the only one that's not with us. And, and he had really not been to Midland for about nine months. But he had a, an event that he was booked for, so he was in town. And 
he had a song on the radio at that time, his first song to play on the radio called Today is Beautiful. And it's a song about perspective. And here's where the song came from. It came from our family, all being at Disneyland. Our, our family likes to take big trips together. We discovered that if we'll pay, everybody comes. <laughs> so we were at Disneyland or Disney World, and Lee's kids at the time were about four and two, named Brady and Addie. So Addie was pushing the empty stroller, and Brady wanted to push that stroller, and Addie wouldn't let him. And so Brady just had a complete meltdown. There was a lot of laughing about that. Here we are at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Got all these rides around you, and here's this kid melting down because I can't push a stroller, something you can do anywhere on earth. And David in particular thought, you know, we kind of do that as humans. We're, we're in a Disneyland, really. The amazing opportunities we have in life, and we're melting down because of the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. But we kind of do this to ourselves. So if we can lift your eyes and see it in a different light, you'll realize everything is beautiful. That's the core of the song. So he came to town, and Mariah and particularly really loved this song. And she couldn't speak well enough to sing the whole thing, but the chorus goes something like... That's how it goes. So she would say, eyes, light, sky. She would just do that one tag word on the end. And she called him Uncle Days. She couldn't date Dave, so it's a Days. So every time the song came on the radio, she would, Uncle Days, and she would sing along. So Uncle Dave was a big favorite. And, of course, he's the only out-of-town uncle, so he's a big favorite. So he came to town. So we went over to Becky's house. Mary Catherine was at her sister's house with Mariah. And... Mary Catherine was holding Mariah, and David said, Hey, Mariah. And Mariah was just not feeling like up to date. She had a really light grade fever. And so she just didn't feel too good. So we said, Oh, okay. Well, you know, she will go let her take a nap, and, and then we'll see her later. So I took Dave, and we had a new office building at the time, and I took him to go on a tour of the office. And I got a call from Terry that was, uh, you know, you got to come home right now. Mariah's not responsive. So we flipped around and went home and uh, realized that the ambulance we had passed was Mariah going to the hospital. And Terry had been outside going for a walk. And Mary Catherine was kind of keeping an eye on Mariah because these fever-induced seizures. So she went in and looked, and Mariah was blue. So she screamed. Terry had just gotten back. She went in, immediately did CPR. They called the EMTs. They were there in five minutes. So really... They caught it in plenty of time. They got her color back. But we learned later that about 90% of the time with the little kids, they can't start their hearts. And that was it. They just couldn't restart her heart. So she's in a nap. She was perfectly fine. And she just died. So here we all are. And... You know, you have this immense tragedy. I knew that when couples lose kids, that the divorce rate's pretty high. So I immediately called our pastor and said, hey, we need help. 
because uh, I, I don't want to see our family break up or see people, you know, families within our family break up. And he said, well, we're just bringing in this program called Grief Share, which I recommend. It helped our family immensely. But here's the bottom line. If you grieve together and you understand the way other people want to grieve and you grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you hurt more faster, but the event will bring you together. But the human tendency is to not want to have pain. So when the pain comes and it's your day to grieve, but not the other person's day, what tends to happen is the other person will withdraw because they don't want to feel that pain that day. So you get a little further apart. And then tomorrow, it's their grief, and you're okay that day. So you withdraw. And people just drift apart because they wouldn't grieve together. And this is the way I personalized it. I'm an oil and gas investor, right? I understand investment. If you invest in other people's pain and grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you're investing in what's left, which is the relationships you still have. So what that looked like for me is every time, for, I mean, for months after, I, every time I saw somebody, they wanted to talk about Mariah's death. And, and they wanted to grieve with me. You know, it, it's a grief for them, too. Now, from my standpoint, I didn't really want to grieve anymore. You know, I grieved enough. But you know what? Because of that perspective that my pastor gave us, I was able to say, I want to grieve with this person because I'm investing in this relationship. This is what remains. And when we continue, more of the story of Tim Dunn, Mariah, and so much more about life and living from this terrific American voice. Tim Dunn's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons, and it's about, well, it's about a loss, but it's also about how to live a life. And when we last left off, we were hearing about grief, and my goodness, what good good advice for anybody who is going through such a thing right now, a real tragic loss in the family, and how to deal with it with other people. But now we continue with the story of Tim Dunn's family, and Yellow Balloons, because, well, what I loved about this book is that it wasn't really about grief. It was about how to live a good life. What the book is really about is not grief, per se, 
It's how to choose a perspective. Because when something tragic like that happens to you, you're forced to choose a perspective. You're forced to think, well, how am I supposed to look at this? But really, every day, all day long, we're choosing a perspective. Most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. And if we are aware, we're not thinking to ourselves, what is the correct perspective? What's true? And, And the book mainly is about the power, the immense power, the overwhelming power to choose how we look at things. There's only three things we get to choose as humans. We get to choose who we trust, what we do, and how we look at things, our perspective, the perspective we choose. That's it. Now, we tend to try to control other people. We can influence other people. We can't control it. We can't make choices for other people. We try to control the weather. We get mad at the weather. We try to control traffic lights. We try to control all kinds of things. Our sports teams. Here's my worst one. I try to control basketball officials. It's futile. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work, and it makes me unhappy, and I lose... I've done it ever since I was a kid. I was a bad player. I would think about the refs instead of thinking about the game. It's counterproductive, okay? So really, the question is, what's what's true about what's going on? And what our pastor helped us do then is choose a true perspective. But really, all day long, every day, we should be thinking to ourselves, what's the true perspective? In order to choose a true perspective, we have to decide, well, what do I believe in? And that's going to shape what we choose to do. And if we do that well, if we do that well, then we will have a great life, no matter what circumstances are, a great life that will go on forever. It it changes eternity when we do that well. If we don't do that well, it's self-induced destruction and it's misery. In the valley is really the only time you generally you're aware of your circumstances, <laughs> right? Because the, the circumstances make you be aware. And the valley is when difficulty comes, uh, disappointment. Your expectations are shattered. And I call it a Job-like experience after the biblical book of Job. But the valleys are the times really usually when growth is most accessible because the circumstances force you to reflect and to decide, do I want to do something different from what I'm used to doing? But most of our life is lived on the plains, everyday routines, and we tend to not value those and not think of them as anything special. We tend to think of the valleys as times we want to avoid and the mountaintops, like when when things are great, when you had some success or achievement that you wanted to have that that's the desirable place and the plains don't really matter. But really, the plains is where most of life is lived. Uh, The word routine means is the derivative of a Latin root that means well-traveled. You know, it's it's where our habits are. And that's really where most of life's opportunity exists. And I, I I had a very tangible example of this that came to me through Mariah. She died on a Friday, and the Wednesday before she died, she was perfectly fine until she died in this nap. You know? And so Wednesday before she came, she's again, she's living with us. And she 
I was I was in the house by myself with her for some reason, and she came over to me and said, tramping, tramping. And I said, you saying trampoline? Yeah. So, well, do you want me to go out and bounce you on the trampoline? Yeah. So, okay. And so I went over and I opened the door, and she goes toddling out, kind of, you know, about a quarter out of balance, go popping out there. And so I bounced her on the trampoline for a while, and she giggled, and then our trampoline's built into the ground, so we can kind of childproof it. <clears throat> so it's a, there's a hole underneath it. So she started getting under that hole and playing peekaboo with me. And every time she would pop up, she'd, you know, belly laugh. Oh, we might have done that for 20 minutes or something. It wasn't, it was just an everyday event. And, you know, and it's easy to say no to kids. It's, it's not usually something, but I always try to say yes, you know. Not long after, you know, my, uh, uh, one of my four-year-olds asked me to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. Really, what I thought inside was, I don't want to play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. But I said, sure, I'll go play Hungry, Hungry Hippo. So, you know, it was an everyday event. Well, it's really my last memory of Mariah. Okay, so you think, well, it was really special. Was it? Is it? Was it special? Yes, it actually was. But was it different than every other opportunity? No. Every opportunity you have to interact with another human, every opportunity you have, it's all special. If you can choose your perspective that way, then really all of life is this unbelievable, wonderful uh, adventure. Now, the Bible says uh, life is like a wisp of vapor. That's a comparative thing. Compared to how long we're going to exist, the life on this earth is not going to last very long. But it's the only time we'll get the opportunity to live where God's presence is veiled from us to enough extent where we can live by faith and make choices without any compulsion. You know, when you see something so clearly, you you don't really have a choice, right? But now things are kind of murky and you have to really think, you know, what's true? What perspective am I going to choose? So this life, although it's short, it's shaping who we become forevermore. And and that part of it's not, not, we can't ever... That's not repeatable. This is a one-shot deal. And if you look at those everyday routines like that, well, it puts a whole new spin on it. And then you have the mountaintops when things are, everything's wonderful, man. This is just what I want to have. But, you know, mountaintops are the most dangerous. First of all, if you become, let's say, extraordinarily wealthy, are wealthy people happier than everybody else? Is that what the statistics tell us? No, no. It, they're more fearful, typically, right? Because you're holding on. I got to stay up on this mountaintop. You know, I got to be. Well, you know, the mountaintops are a place where you can forget what reality is. You can kind of get the illusion that you do control things because you can kind of buy everything you want, right? But, you know, all trains just terrain. If, if you learn to look at it as, oh, you know, here I am. So now, how do I look at it? What's true? Who do I trust? What do I do? Now you're living out of your values and you're going to have success no matter what. And that was Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons. And my goodness, we love bringing ordinary stories from ordinary Americans to you, and particularly wisdom, which is a hard thing to come by these days. And there's a lot of wisdom in what Tim Dunn says. And whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, the values, the principles that he's talking about, my goodness. We all have something to learn from Tim. Again, his book is Yellow Balloons. You can go to timdunn.org, and that's Tim, D-U-N-N.org. 
Tim Dunn's story, his granddaughter Mariah's story, what a loss, but how to deal with grief, and that's everyone's story because it's coming around to everybody sooner or later. All of that, all of those stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. There, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how, uh, how they used to have, like, duels and draw against each other and... Well, as I said, I mean, there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another. The movies created fastball. It never happened in real life. Really? Mm-hmm. You mean no, no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever? No. Oh, I see. Shot. So it's a fabrication of the movies. How, huh? how did how did Bill Hickok die? I think it was shot in the back. That's the way they all died. I've taken what they what the movies have created and I've built a show around it. And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. 
nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no, what are you talking about? I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No, no way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. And you reach nearly 10 G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of 9 Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. No. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. I'll, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you got to cock it, bang, cock it. Aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yep. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So, you know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her, and I can't, I, can't, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, 
Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years. And we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon. And we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old. And uh, we put them in the back with their toys. And we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know. And then uh, we were in the front. And we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around, too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error and changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started asking me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. Family members and special guests Use single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year 
of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org.